You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome again, everyone. Over the last several episodes, I've endeavored to lay out a logical and orderly case for Christian universalism. But in real life, our most deeply held beliefs accrue over a lifetime of experiences and intuitive moments. And so I want to share my story with you. And as I do, I invite you to think back over your own story in life and to consider those moments and experiences which have shaped you and your thinking on spiritual matters. I didn't start out with any set ideas about spirituality. My parents were each raised in church, but for various reasons weren't attending church when I was growing up. They were both from Tennessee, but I grew up in Irving, Texas, where we'd moved for my father to pursue a career in commercial aviation after nine years in the Air Force. My mom devoted her time to the home and to me, the only child. When I was in second grade, my mother, believing I should know something about Christianity, took me to visit a church of the kind that she'd attended as a child. That day, the minister told a story about teenagers who'd gotten drunk, died in a car crash, and were sent to hell forever because they weren't saved, meaning they hadn't personally accepted Jesus into their hearts as Lord and Savior. After the church service, I told Mother, That place is scary, and I don't want to go back. Mother honored my request. A few years later, when I was in the fifth grade, my parents arranged for a babysitter while they were out for the evening. Believing I was a little old for that, I wasn't too excited about it. But when the babysitter turned out to be a beautiful 16-year-old, I began to look forward to the evening. But I couldn't have guessed what was in store because this young woman was very evangelical and very armed with the gospel for my salvation. I'm sure she was just passing on to me what she had been taught, but she had been taught some pretty bracing things. She explained to me that even if I couldn't think of anything really bad I'd ever done, I was still a sinner, because everyone's a sinner, because everyone's born that way. And God, being holy, had to send sinners to hell forever unless they accepted Jesus into their hearts as Lord and Savior before they died. Eventually, I did what any frightened kid might do in my situation. Faced with a spiritual gun put to my head, I followed along in a prayer where I invited Jesus into my heart. But I really didn't feel saved after all of that. The whole experience just left me feeling vulnerable, confused, and terrified about God. During my teenage years, I had a few more church experiences, friends inviting me, but these just reinforced my views about Christianity. God was going to send all of us teenagers to hell forever and everyone else too, unless we believed and were saved. It seemed to me that church and Christianity was all about avoiding God's eternal wrath in a hell of unending torment, all of which would come your way for the tiniest infraction, unless you accepted Jesus the right way, whatever that meant and believed the right things, whatever those were, and gave your life completely to following Jesus, however it was you were supposed to do that. The church services I visited at the invitation of friends were all very emotional, ending with every eye closed and every head bowed, 
followed with people crying and going up to the front to get saved at the end. But the whole thing seemed emotionally and psychologically manipulative and driven by fear rather than reason. I began to think that the only way to be a Christian was to check your brain at the door and to agree to submissively believe whatever the church authoritatively dictated to you. There was no room for critical thinking or science. Just, you better believe the Bible the way we explain it to you without asking questions, or you're going to hell forever. So, thanks, but no thanks. After high school, I went off to college at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. But when I came back home for Christmas break, my mother had to tell me that she and my father were getting divorced. My parents' divorce wasn't a mean, terrible affair. But for me, it was still bracing. And what bothered me as well was not just that my parents had divorced, but that several of my friends' parents had divorced as well. There seemed to be a pattern. The future adult world into which I was heading was apparently a place of disillusionment, where people became disenchanted with their lives, their jobs, and their marriages. And then when I peered out into the distant future, there waiting for me was the specter of aging and death. Even if I ever did happen to find a happy, satisfying life, eventually aging and death would take it all away from me. The more I thought about all of this, the more depressed it all made me. The idea of God didn't do much to help me. The angry, inscrutable, vindictive Christian God to which I'd been introduced didn't give me any hope, but it was the only picture of God I knew about. The summer after my first year at Tech, I came back home to Irving. I was working out one day at the YMCA and also working out that day at the Y was the youth minister of the Hell Preaching Church I'd visited at the urging of friends during high school. He noticed me and invited me to come by his office at the church. I was initially a little hesitant but I accepted his invitation. So I went by his office and told him all about my reservations regarding God and Christianity. He listened, and he didn't argue with me. He just recommended I might try reading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which I did. And what I noticed pretty quickly was that the Christianity C.S. Lewis described in Mere Christianity was quite a bit different from what I'd heard at the Hell Preaching Church. Lewis 1898 to 1963, had been a skeptic through a large part of his life, and I could really identify with his skepticism. But in mere Christianity, he laid out a reasonable, orderly account of his journey into faith. I didn't realize Christianity could be so logical and thoughtful. And so C.S. Lewis became, for me, the first indication that some kind of Christian spirituality might be an option for me. Lewis himself was a highly educated British man, a professor of literature who taught at Cambridge and Oxford. Lewis also expressed his theological ideas through imaginative fiction. In his book, The Great Divorce, he told a whimsical story of a traveler taking a bus trip from the edges of hell to the borderlands of heaven, where any citizen of hell could become a citizen of heaven if they could just let go of the evil which was holding them back. On heaven's borderlands, the traveler meets a wise old sage by the name of George MacDonald, who explains how all spiritual travelers ultimately find what they truly seek. I would discover later in life that George MacDonald, whom Lewis considered his spiritual mentor, was an actual person, a minister and author from Scotland who believed all the judgments of God, even hell itself, were ultimately restorative in nature. From The Great Divorce, I went on to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and The Last Battle, the first and last books of Lewis' series, The Chronicles of Narnia. 
In the last battle, there is a showdown between the forces of evil, led by the four-armed, vulture-headed Tash, and the forces of good, led by the great talking lion Aslan. Aslan, a Christ figure, ultimately wins the great battle. After the final battle, there's a scene between Aslan and one of Tash's soldiers named Emeth, who expects to be judged and destroyed by Aslan. Unexpectedly, Aslan shows Emeth grace and forgiveness instead, explaining how all true service, no matter how mistaken, ultimately counts as service to him. In the writings of C.S. Lewis, I gradually discovered a Christian vision of a very good God, and I came to a true moment of faith. This God was good and reasonable, and was just trying to save us from evil. This God didn't throw people into hell. People only ended up there because they put themselves there. According to Lewis, all the doors in hell were locked from the inside. So, in fits and starts, I stumbled my way into my own private understanding of what a good God might be like. One day I was praying and I had a powerful experience of the presence of God in intense waves of peace and joy and hope. It was an experience never equaled since. It was the kind of thing that you talk about but can't put into words. But it was something like the overwhelming presence of unconditional love. And so when I went back to Texas Tech, I started trying some different churches out because I now understood that what I'd been exposed to in my youth was a kind of Christian fundamentalism. But at the time, it was all I knew. And it was presented to me with such authority that I thought it was the only kind of Christianity there had ever been. But now, armed with my new, broader vision of what Christianity might be, I started to investigate churches which I considered to be more gentle and intellectual. During that time, I shared my story with a friend of mine in the Texas Tech band. We were in the same pledge class of Kappa Kappa Psi, the band service fraternity. And we were visiting one day about all of this, and he said that I sounded an awful lot like the kind of person who might like the church that he grew up in. It was called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. This church's long name goes back to its early history on the American frontier. This was an American-born church which had adopted the idea that each person should have the freedom to form their own best opinions as they read the Bible to the best of their understanding for the purpose of applying it to their own lives while being non-judgmental of others. This church promoted free thinking and inquiry. It didn't try to force any one theology because it didn't have any one theology. It just created a wide-open, encouraging environment for individuals to grow and discover within a Christian context. As I experienced it, it wasn't a hell-preaching church, but a love-preaching church. This church put no limits on the love of God, and the clear emphasis was the grace and mercy that Jesus had exhibited towards others, and how if we were to follow him, we would be about the business of extending that same grace and mercy to others in the same way. This church helped me to deal with resentments and bitterness through the practice of forgiveness and unconditional love towards others. Ultimately, this church encouraged and sponsored my seminary education, and I entered the ministry in the hopes that I might be able to help others to have the experience that this church had given to me. In 2005, I started to really focus my ministry on spiritual growth because I began to realize that unless someone truly caught on to the genuine joy of ongoing spiritual growth, the experience of church would eventually burn them out. Anybody who's ever been in church very long knows that church involves people. No matter how well-meaning these people are trying to be, even in the most forgiving of churches, there can be differences of opinion and challenges and frustrations. I began to believe that if church was the only place 
people were experiencing spirituality, then sooner or later the challenges and frustrations of church would overwhelm the benefits and they would drift off. And so I thought that a solution to this problem would be spiritual growth. I thought that if church was just one part of a true excitement about the daily experience of spiritual growth in someone's life, then both the frustrations and the rewards of church would be able to fit into their spiritual lives in the right way. But I wondered what motivation there could be which would be pure enough to empower such excitement about ongoing daily spiritual growth. The only sufficiently powerful motivation I could see would be the development of a true desire for an ever-increasing experience of the perfect love at the heart of God. I didn't want to promote a fear or guilt-based spiritual environment. It seemed to me that spiritual growth would flounder if its purpose was either to earn salvation or to earn God's love. I came to believe that if spiritual growth was really going to last for the long term, it had to be driven by something extremely positive and powerful. The only engine I could see which qualified was a deep desire to experience everything good at the heart of a truly good God. But then this led me to some hard questions. How much certainty do we actually have that God's goodness really has us? Is there a point at which God's goodness towards us runs out and God gives up? Is there a point of failure God lets us get past where we are lost to God forever? Also, during this time I was in a theological discussion group with some church members. Our discussions revolved around the topics of eternal destinies and the purpose of God's judgments. A couple of the members of the group encouraged me to rethink my negative position on Christian universalism. And that's exactly the kind of thing that happens in our churches. Ministers, even though they have seminary training, are still in spiritual development as well. Our job is not to lord over people, but to be with people and to be with them in real conversations and to even leave some room open in our own theological development to make adjustments along the way. Remember, in our church, there's no one theology that's being defended. The only thing that's being defended is that we are all to continue to grow and follow Jesus to the best of our understanding and to help others to do the same. So when my friends in our little discussion group started bringing up the topic of Christian universalism with me, I began to think it might be time for me to revisit this topic. I had considered Christian universalism before, but I wasn't quite convinced about it. I was concerned that Christian universalism might violate free will. It seemed to me at the time that while God wanted to save all people, some people might just embrace evil to such an extent that they'd eventually become completely overtaken by it. Also, my impression back then was that most universalists were not really Orthodox Christians, but really spiritual pluralists who believed all roads equally led to God. However, I was, and still am, of the opinion that any path which leads to ultimate union with God has to eventually go through Christ. Then came a very significant meeting. I was having lunch one day with a member of the discussion group. He had come to embrace Christian universalism, and he pointedly said to me, I would never give up on any of my children, ever, and I don't see how I'm a better parent than God. Now, my wife and I weren't able to have children, so I've never experienced the depth of feeling for a child my friend was talking about. I began to wonder if never being a father might have caused a blind spot in my own theology. So I resolved to catch up on what had been written on the topic of Christian universalism since I had studied it earlier as part of a Doctor of Ministry degree I'd completed back in 1996. The topic of my thesis for this Doctor of Ministry degree touched on the three main understandings of hell in the history of Christianity, those being hell as a place of eternal torment, hell as a place of final annihilation, and hell as a place of restoration. 
But once I started looking again into Christian universalism in 2011 and 2012, I quickly discovered the landscape had changed quite a bit. My previous research had been done back in 1996, and it seems strange to say it now, but I'd done it without the aid of the Internet. But this time around, with the help of the Internet, I discovered stronger arguments for hell as a place of restoration. And to my complete shock and surprise, I discovered that most of the recent writing in favor of Christian universalism was coming from people with backgrounds in the evangelical wing of the church. I was especially impressed with the book, The Inescapable Love of God, written by a Christian professor of philosophy named Thomas Talbot. Talbot wrote at a genuinely academic level and gave insightful arguments for Christian universalism. I was fascinated with the gentle but powerful logical progression of Professor Talbot's thought. As I continued my research, I was also surprised to discover that William Barclay had come to believe God would ultimately save all. Barclay, 1907-1978, was professor of divinity at Glasgow University. Barclay's commentary set on the New Testament sold millions of copies and was in the church library of every church in which I'd ever served. Barclay, in A Spiritual Autobiography, wrote about how he had come to understand himself as a convinced universalist. He gave credit to early church fathers who had believed this way, but Barclay also wanted to set forth his own reasons on why he had come to this conclusion. He gave four reasons why. First, he thought there was more than enough evidence in the New Testament to support it. Second, he believed that the phrase eternal torment found in Matthew 25:46 could just as easily be understood in the original Greek to mean remedial punishment. His third and fourth reasons had to do with the power of grace and the nature of God. I found his third and fourth reasons especially compelling, and I want to share them with you now. Here they are. This is William Barclay. Third, I believe that it is impossible to set limits on the grace of God. I believe that not only in this world, but in any other world there may be, the grace of God is still effective, still operative, still at work. I do not believe that the operation of the grace of God is limited to this world. I believe that the grace of God is as wide as the universe. Fourth, I believe implicitly in the ultimate and complete triumph of God, the time when all things will be subject to Him and when God will be everything to everyone, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. For me, this has certain consequences. If one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. Further, there is only one way in which we can think of the triumph of God. If God was no more than a king or a judge, then it would be possible to speak of his triumph if his enemies were agonizing in hell or were totally and completely obliterated and wiped out. But God is not only king and judge. God is father. He is indeed father more than anything else. No father could be happy while there were members of his family forever in agony. No father would count it a triumph to obliterate the disobedient members of his family. The only triumph a father can know is to have all his family back home. The only victory love can enjoy is the day when its offer of love is answered by the return of love. The only possible final triumph is a universe loved by and in love with God. Barclay neatly summarized the basic arguments about which I had been reading and studying. For Barclay, the determinative factor lay finally in how God should be considered more than a judge or king, but above all as a parent and how no parent could finally rest easy until all of their children were back home. During this period of renewed study on the possibility of God saving all, 
I also had a profound spiritual experience. One night, I lay awake in bed pondering all these things. I started wondering how all of this applied to me. How sure was I of my own ultimate salvation? I had yet to face any real tragedy in my own life. I started wondering what would happen if I was to face real tragedy. Was it possible my whole spiritual life might unravel? Might I potentially crack right down the middle? If I somehow got headed towards an unrecoverable situation, would God intervene? How far would God's parental concern for me go? Then I began the following conversation with God in my mind. God, I'm doing pretty well spiritually right now. I'm even a minister. But what if the wheels fell off? What if the wheels really fell off? What if I completely lost it? What if something terrible happened? And what if because of it, I lost my faith? Then what? God. That night as I lay there contemplating how I wasn't bulletproof, I had to admit that given the right series of tragedies, I might just lose it all. And then I had a God moment. I didn't hear an audible voice, but the strong impression I received was this. David, this is not about you having me. This is about me having you. That was a turning point for me. That was the moment I crossed over spiritually into believing I wasn't just partially saved by grace, but completely saved by grace, completely secure in grace, that there was nothing which could defeat God's perfect will for my life. And then I began to see, of course, that this couldn't just be for me. If it was for me, it had to be for everybody. It came to me with great force that each and every person is God's dearly beloved child. We're all being saved by grace alone, saved by God's enduring, sovereign, saving presence in each of our lives. After this revelatory moment, I began a new way of living spiritually. I began to live out of the understanding that I and everyone else was eternally accepted and included. I saw each person, including myself, as a flawed person on one level, but on a much deeper level, as a dearly loved child of God, a sheep of God's flock. From this moment, I saw Jesus as the great shepherd who came to save and deliver all of his sheep, which is all of us. I came to believe God would finally carry me and everyone else to perfection in Christ. Looking back over my life now, it's paradoxical that the person who originally pointed me to C.S. Lewis was a youth minister from a hellfire church, because it was the writings of Lewis which first sparked hope in me that there might be a truly good God at the center of everything. I liked everything C.S. Lewis wrote, and I especially enjoyed his imaginative spiritual tale about a make-believe place called Narnia. Lewis, although not a Christian universalist himself, was the one who set me off on my own kind of Narnian adventure, which led in that direction. In that journey, I would run into George MacDonald, a Christian universalist-leaning Scottish minister and novelist from the 1800s, whom Lewis considered to be his greatest spiritual mentor. From George MacDonald, I would graduate to modern scholars like Brad Jerzak, Robin Perry, Ilaria Romelli, Thomas Talbot, and David Bentley Hart. And perhaps I should mention here that Brad Jerzak shies away from any universalist title, preferring himself to be understood as someone who holds out with strong hope for the ultimate redemption of humanity, while other authors on this list, Perry, Romelli, Talbot, and Hart, are all comfortable with being understood as Christian universalists. The ultimate effect of this journey was to increase my confidence that the judgments of God are ultimately part of the loving grace of God because their ultimate purpose is to accomplish the final healing of the soul. I now know that this understanding of the Christian faith is not new, but as old as the father of the fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, and the early centuries of the church. 
This is how I came to believe the deepest meaning of the Christian faith is that we are all included in God's saving grace, a grace which finally saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.